begin and just to enjoy the presence of the Lord. And this is the halfway mark. And if you've been coming from the first week, we're now at the halfway stage and the end is in sight. Well, tonight we're going to be looking primarily at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, please feel free to turn to it, although many of the scriptures will be in the outline. And if you are here last week, you'll recall that I mentioned that this letter which Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote primarily not to bring instruction, but rather correction. But in the correction, there was instruction, but his purpose primarily was to correct issues that were taking place in the Corinthian church. And we know that because he would introduce various problems with those two words, now concerning or now about. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, he introduces this area of the gifts of the Spirit with those two words, now concerning. Now concerning spiritual gifts. So that indicates there was some issue around this area of the manifestation of the Spirit in their gathering. And the second point we noticed was that the contextual setting for the gifts of the Spirit is that of worship. And we know that because Paul at various times in his letter wrote these words, when you come together. And why else would the church come together but to worship and glorify God. And so there was some kind of issue in the setting of worship when the church assembled concerning the matter of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we discovered that the issue was that people were speaking in tongues. Nothing wrong with speaking in tongues. In fact, Paul says it's a good thing. He thanked God that he spoke in tongues more than all the Corinthians did. The issue wasn't speaking in tongues per se. The problem was the majority, if not all of the Corinthians, were speaking in tongues at the one and the same time. And if you can imagine what that must have been like, or to use a, an analogy, if you've ever been to a foreign country and attended a church service in the language unique to that country, and there's been no translator, you probably didn't get a lot out of the message. Well, in Corinth, it would seem that when the church assembled, the majority, if not all, were speaking in tongues and of course, there was chaos, there was disorder, there was disarray, and that would appear to have been the problem. And so Paul tackles this problem with a twofold strategy, and we looked at the first approach last week. The way he first of all approached this problem of one gift of the Spirit, the gift of tongues, which was dominating the worship service, was to emphasize and stress the importance and need for diversity. He said to the Corinthians, using the analogy of the human physical body, he said to them, you're acting like a human body with only one active body part. And so throughout chapter 12, which we looked at last week, he stressed over and over again the importance of diversity. If the Holy Spirit is allowed to move in our midst, he will bring 
diversity. And Paul cited various examples of that, various examples of the Spirit manifesting himself in the gathering. And he would say, to one is given this gift, to another this gift, to one this, to another, to another, to another, and still to another. And I pointed out he was not necessarily giving us a a list of gifts and saying there are nine gifts of the Spirit and only nine. That wasn't his intention. His intention, his emphasis was on diversity, to get away from the mentality that speaking in tongues is the be-all and end-all and and start recognizing that the Spirit of God will manifest himself in different and diverse ways. And that was the whole emphasis last week we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, tonight we want to look at the second approach that he brings to this misuse of the gift of tongues in the Corinthian church. And tonight we're going to look at Paul's second emphasis, which is intelligibility. Now, what I mean by that? Intelligibility simply means only that which is understood can edify and encourage the body. And really you see the wisdom of God in Paul's approach because if one gift was dominating the worship service, if everybody at the same time were speaking in tongues, nobody understood a word that was being said and by implication and result, nobody was being edified. No one was being encouraged. And so he's going to stress in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 over and over again the importance of of intelligibility. Only that which can be understood will edify and build up and strengthen and encourage the body. And I don't know about you, but I need all the encouragement I can get. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be encouraged. It's got a very negative press, particularly in this age we live in from the media. It needs encouragement. This is the body of Christ, the body that Jesus Christ died for. He's the Savior of the body, and He loves His church, and He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the issue in Corinth was that of disorderly worship, and Paul's solution, diversity and intelligibility. We looked at various manifestations of the Spirit last week, and tonight we're going to look at how those manifestations of the Spirit can be facilitated in the local church. And Paul will show examples of, if to use a better word, protocol in the local church to facilitate the gifts of the Spirit. Remember there was chaos, and Paul will say in this chapter 14, let all things be done decently and in order. The Holy Spirit brings order out of chaos. Genesis chapter 1, I I mentioned the very first night, shows a prime example of that. And tonight, we're not going to read all of chapter 14, but I'm going to look at selected verses, verses which emphasize the importance of intelligibility as it relates to the gifts of the Spirit. Paul, his main emphasis and heart is that the church be encouraged, that the church be edified and be built up. And you might be here tonight thinking, well, look, 
I go to church on a Sunday and I sing the choruses and I praise God and I hear the word preached and I'm built up and I'm edified. And I say a hearty amen to that. And you might be thinking, well, why do we need the gifts of the Spirit when we're being edified through the word? And really, the reason I want to give, and I mentioned this last week, we want to be a healthy New Testament church. Remember what I said last week? I referenced someone who made this statement. Someone said that the church has become subnormal. That when it begins to look normal, it actually looks abnormal. Meaning that the church has moved so far away from its New Testament beginning that when it begins to recover and recapture that, it looks abnormal to society who have been accustomed to the status quo and going through the motions Sunday by Sunday. And the second reason why we need to allow the Spirit of God to manifest Himself is because we do not want to limit God. I remember a year or two years ago, I preached a message in this very church about limiting God. We don't want to place a restraint on God the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that when we meet together, if we desire the Holy Spirit to move and make space for Him to move and make ourselves available, He will move. God will manifest Himself in our midst to edify and encourage one another. God, by His Spirit, will make Himself known, make Himself real, manifest His presence, demonstrate His power. When we come together, He will do that if we desire Him to, and He will do it through His body, you and me. The Holy Spirit who inspired your Bible is the same Holy Spirit who anoints the one that will preach who wrote the words that the preacher will proclaim. And that same Holy Spirit wants to move and appropriate biblical promises and truth to your life and mine individually and corporately as we meet together. Now in this chapter tonight, Paul mentions three gifts of the Spirit and alludes to a fourth and offers practical protocols as to how they might be facilitated in the local church. And the the, the gifts that he cites, first of all, is the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and he alludes to the gift of discerning of spirits. We looked at that last week. I have these here for you in your outline. Now, before we go on and we look at the gift of tongues, let me just say a few things about this gift. Though it was, in a sense a gift that was dominating the worship at Corinth. There was not a problem with the gift of tongues. The problem was with its misuse. The gift of tongues has two purposes. There's only one gift of tongues, but it serves two purposes. Firstly, in the believer's private devotional life. It's a gift that God gives you and me to help us in our prayer times. 
I don't know about you, but because we live in a fallen world, sometimes we don't always feel like praying. Sometimes it's a real battle, it's a real struggle, and at times we don't know how to pray. We just cannot articulate and express the words to the Father, what we feel in our heart. And God has graciously made provision through this gift of tongues to enable us pray and praise Him in an unknown, unknown language when our own native language fails us. And Paul said to the Corinthians, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. He valued this gift on a personal basis. He who speaks in an unknown tongue, the scripture says, edifies himself, builds himself up, encourages himself in his walk with God. So the gift of tongues has a, an important use in our devotional lives. The second use for the gift of tongues is in the corporate setting when we assemble together as a local church, when someone will give an utterance in tongues followed by the gift of interpretation and the purpose is to edify, to encourage the body of Christ. Let me say this to dispel a common myth about tongues. Speaking in tongues does not have to be a known language. It can be, and I would say in many cases, it is, an un, it is a known language, but yet unknown to the one who speaks it. But it does not have to be a known language in order to be valid. On the day of Pentecost, obviously, the tongues that were being spoken were known languages. People recognized and heard people magnifying and praising God in their own languages. But here we have in Corinth the gift of tongues dominating the worship service, and if it was a known language, there wouldn't be a problem. It doesn't have to be a known language to be valid. That's why we're given the gift of interpretation of tongues. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, Who, whoever speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to man, but to God, for no one, no one understands him. And the implication is it can be an unknown language. When Paul wrote in chapter 13, he made this comment, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. He may have been referring to angelic tongues. We don't know. But it does not necessarily have to be a known language in order to be valid. The second thing I want to say about the gift of tongues, and this is a, a myth that you hear sometimes, that the gift of tongues is given for the purpose of evangelism. That somehow it's given to those who go in the mission field to a far country to preach the gospel. Let me say this, there's nowhere in the scripture that says that or substantiates that. On the day of Pentecost, people were not converted because of speaking in tongues. Ironically, when they heard speaking in tongues, and bear in mind speaking in tongues can be quite a divisive issue in the church today, but ironically on the day of Pentecost, upon hearing speaking in tongues, the crowds came together. 
They actually came together upon hearing this phenomenon. And it was when they came together that Peter had a captive audience, but he began to preach in his own native language, resulting in 3,000 plus conversions. So speaking in tongues is not used for evangelism. Now in 1 Corinthians 14, let's just look at the first few verses here. I have them on your outline, so I'll just read from there. And let me say this just before we read it, because this is remarkable. Given the fact there was a misuse of the gift of tongues in the Corinthian church, you would think like any experienced pastor would likely take this course of action to tell those speaking in tongues just to tone it down and maybe put it on the back burner for a few months, let things settle. But do you know what Paul does? Do you know what Paul's solution to this misuse is? Paul's solution to the misuse of tongues is not non-use. It is continued use, but better. He's not saying to them, don't do it. He's saying to them, do it, but do it better. Paul begins in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Given the, the, the misuse of tongues and the chaos, look, listen to him, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Not just simply desire them, earnestly desire them. Let me ask you the question, as you've been here the last two weeks do you earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit? Do you earnestly desire that God the Holy Spirit will make Himself known, make Himself real, release His presence, demonstrate His power when you come together as a local church? Do you earnestly desire that? Paul says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, pursue love, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets that the church may be built up. Now notice the words, the language that occurs in these verses. Language like builds up, edifies. Paul wants the church to be built up, to be edified, to be encouraged. And he will press the issue time and time again. Only that which is intelligible will edify. They were speaking in tongues together collectively and nobody was being built up. So he will address that. And he will stress the need for edification. He says the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Self-edification. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
You see, if I pray in tongues in my personal devotional life, I'm being built up. But the rest of the church isn't, collectively, unless they do that individually. But when we come together, if somebody prophesies, the church will be built up. Now notice what Paul says, and I have it here in verse 5 on your outline. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Do you hear his heart? I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Now let me just pause there for a moment. He's not saying the gift of prophecy is greater than the gift of tongues. He's not saying that. He says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless, unless someone interprets that the church may be built up. Again, only that which is intelligible, that which can be understood, will edify. And so what he's saying here, if somebody speaks in tongues publicly in the church setting, and somebody then interprets what is said, the church will be built up. And that puts the gift of tongues and interpretation on an equal footing with the gift of prophecy, because they both serve to build up the church. Both are gifts which impart intelligibility, and so the church is built up and strengthened. Paul's emphasis, intelligibility, he will argue that over and over again. In verses 7 to 9, he'll use examples of musical instruments. If there's no distinction in the notes, nobody's going to appreciate that beautiful melody. He uses the example of, of, of troops going to war. If there's no distinct notes in that bugle being played, the troops won't know what's expected of them because it's just random sounds. Only that which can be understood will edify and build up. That's his whole argument time and time again. And in verse 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Building up Church. Just as I said that, I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me. I just had this mental picture. Like almost a church building with bricks and a lot of bricks missing. And I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying, and I suspect it's collectively here for the church. There's a building process going on. There's construction going on spiritually. God is building. A few bricks have been taken out of place, but God is building. He's at work. There's a building program going on. Strive to excel in building up the church. Now let's look at verses 14 to 17. Paul says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? 
I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind. He's speaking in in his private devotional life. He'll pray in tongues. He'll sing in tongues. He'll pray with his understanding. He'll sing with his understanding. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? You all may be giving thanks well enough, but the other is not being built up. So Paul talks about his own private life, then he switches to the church. And when the church comes together, if someone is praising God in tongues or more than one person are, and there's no interpretation, nobody understands what's being said, nobody can say amen to that praise and worship being offered up in unknown tongues. No one can say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. And again, Paul is just stressing over and over again the need for intelligibility. Only that which can be understood will edify. Now in verses 21, I haven't this in the outline, but if you have your Bibles, this is an important passage. And again, all about intelligibility. And directly related to the problem in the Corinthian church where one gift was dominating the service. Let me just read these verses from verse 21. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers." If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, this was the problem, and outsiders or unbelievers enter in, will they not say, you're out of your minds? Paul says tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And he says this to expose and just drive home the issue of the problem in the Corinthian church. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. And incidentally, Isaiah 28, 11 is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, 49, where the Lord says he will bring a nation against you, that's Israel, from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. Speaking about the Assyrian captivity. And with that thought in mind, bear in mind, God repeatedly warned Israel to repent. And the crux was, if they didn't, they were going to encounter a nation whose language or whose tongues they did not understand. And that spelt one thing, judgment. And with that thought in mind, Paul uses that and applies it to the situation of the misuse of tongues in the Corinthian church. And what he says is this. If you all together speak in tongues and an unbeliever comes in, you are giving that unbeliever a sign of judgment that that unbeliever does not deserve to be given. That unbeliever's heart is not yet hardened to the point to give him a sign of judgment. You see, 
Paul says, if an unbeliever or an outsider comes in and you're all speaking in tongues, will he not say you're mad or out of your mind? And the implication of that is, if such a scenario occurs, an unbeliever being exposed to that kind of misuse and abuse will walk out of the church and may never darken a church again and may be on his or her way to a lost eternity. The sign of tongues to an unbeliever is a sign that was given originally as a sign of judgment. Paul says, you're not to give that sign of judgment to an unbeliever into your church by your behavior. That's what he was saying to the Corinthian church. He goes on to say in verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one is a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, to build up, to strengthen. Could you imagine what that, our church services would look like if we did that every week? If every person came, not just to receive, but to give for the edification of the body, if someone came with a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, to build up. Paul says in verse 27, bearing in mind the context, the, the issue at hand, and he's bringing protocol to facilitate the gift of tongues, not to shut it down because it's being misused. He says in verse 27, <clears throat> If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Everybody, or the majority, were speaking in tongues at one and the same time, and Paul says, you need to stop that. Let two, or at the most three people, speak in tongues. You're not to let the one gift dominate the service. Two or three speaking tongues, one at a time, each in turn. And when each speaks in tongues, let somebody interpret what has been said, that the church may be built up. Here you see Paul using the practicality of the protocol to bring the solution to the problem. He goes on to say, if there's no one to interpret, let each keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. In other words, what he's saying is, if you want to speak in tongues publicly in church, first of all, make sure you know somebody is there who can interpret, or else be prepared to pray for the interpretation yourself. And if it's neither of those scenarios are there, then keep quiet. Because if you speak in tongues and there's no interpretation, it doesn't benefit anybody. Notice by him saying that, he's saying something that really should alleviate fears that many people have where the gifts, of the, the gifts of the Spirit are concerned. Because the person who exercises a gift of the Spirit is in complete control. They're in complete control of their faculties. The Holy Spirit doesn't seize them or make them or force them to do anything. 
They're in complete control. Paul will go on to say, with regards prophesying, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. A person never has the excuse to say, I couldn't help myself when they blurt something out. They never have that excuse because they're in complete control. Verse 29. Paul says, let two of the three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. This is an allusion to the gift of discerning of spirits. Because every utterance in tongues followed by an interpretation or every prophetic word must be weighed and tested. Has to be tested. Whenever John wrote his epistle, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. And I pointed out last week the word spirits in discerning of spirits. The word spirits, they do not refer to evil spirits, but to the human spirit that manifests a prophetic gift. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. It's the human spirit indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a prophetic gift is manifest. That's the spirit that has to be tested, discerned, wed. Discerning of spirits is vital. See, the enemy's, one of his greatest weapons is deception. His power is in the lie. He can use the lie to hold people captive. Everything has to be tested. When Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, don't quench the spirit, but test all things. He said, don't despise prophesying, but test all things. Test all things. read on, verses 30. He's now dealing with the gift of prophesying, which he encourages us to seek for because it will edify the church. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to one sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. I mentioned this last week. There are two components to the gift of prophecy. First of all, there is a revelation. Paul says, let the prophet speak two or three. He says, if a revelation is made, this is the mechanics of prophecy, it begins with a revelation. If a revelation is made to one sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. And the picture Paul has in mind here of the gathering is, somebody may be talking, and one sitting by gets a revelation from God. God has revealed something. And Paul says, that person, don't blurt it out immediately, just wait your turn, wait till the other person finishes, and then share it. And the sharing of that revelation, Paul attributes to prophesying. When a revelation comes, when it's communicated, it's prophecy. It's prophesying. 
That word revelation may make you feel nervous, but it shouldn't. Because the word revelation simply means something revealed. That's all. God gives you revelation. He gives me revelation about ourselves. God shows us things about ourselves. <coughs> Philippians 3.15, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He gives revelation about ourselves. Don't let the word revelation make you nervous. It shouldn't. God gives us revelation about himself. Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. A revelation is something that God reveals to you. Maybe a picture, a thought, a dream, an impression, a scripture verse. I said this last week. When you communicate a revelation, you're prophesying. And when you think of all the thousands of verses in the Bible, if God impresses one of those on your heart to share with someone, you may have no idea the impact that is going to make in their life at this moment. You don't know what they're going through or what they will go through, and the Spirit of God will remind them of that. You might think, oh, you might think I just shared a verse with someone. No, you did more than that. You spoke prophetically into their life, into their situation. But you see, we have this stereotype that when someone prophesies, they get up and they say, thus says the Lord, and so on, and then, no. Simply sharing, communicating something that God has led in your heart, that he has revealed or impressed to you. But we need to test prophecy. Let the prophets speak two or three and let the others weigh what is said. Why do we need to test prophecy? Prophecy is communicating a revelation, but before we communicate that which God reveals to us, there are two filters it needs to pass through. Interpretation and application. The Apostle Paul was given prophetic words. I'm sure there are people here who've been given prophetic words. Paul the Apostle, who wrote the, the very passage we've been looking at tonight, he himself received a number of prophetic words. In Acts 21.4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul's friends were speaking prophetically to him through the Spirit, telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They most likely prophesied the same thing to Paul as the other ones, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And then in Acts 21, we have a seasoned prophet who predicted a famine, and it came to pass, a man called Agabus. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
we look at these prophetic words given to Paul. Paul's friends encouraged him not to go to Jerusalem. They told him that through the Spirit. Now, if you were in Paul's shoes, what would you do? Would you go or not go? Through the Spirit, they said to Paul, don't go. Agabus prophesied what would await him if he went to Jerusalem. And when Agabus prophesied that to him, his friend said, don't go. You know what Paul did? obeyed them. He went. And when he went to Jerusalem, he triggered an uproar in the city by bringing a man called Trophimus, a Gentile, into the, the temple, and there was nearly a riot. And do you know what happened? The Jews seized him. And were ready to kill him. The Roman soldiers came to his rescue. Now think about that for a moment. Agabus, the seasoned prophet, prophetically acted out and said to Paul, this is what's going to happen to Paul, the Jews at Jerusalem are going to bind him and deliver him into the hands of the Romans. But that is not what happened. Jews did not bind Paul with chains and deliver him into the Romans. They grabbed him and were ready to kill him. The Romans were the ones who bound Paul, and they did so to deliver him out of the hands of the Jews, to rescue him. How can we reconcile that? Furthermore, look at it from Paul's perspective. Being told by his friends through the Spirit and hearing this prophetic word from Agabus about going to Jerusalem, and Paul decided to disobey. Look at it from his perspective. Because in Acts 19, listen to what it says. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem through the Spirit. Now they both can't be right. Goes on to say, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Well, how can we reconcile this? What Agabus said did not exactly come to pass in the manner in which he said it. The friends of Paul, through the Spirit, told him not to go. And yet Paul purposed in the Spirit to go. So how do we reconcile that? We reconcile it by recognizing that a prophecy has three elements. It begins with a revelation, then there is an interpretation, followed by an application. And I want to suggest to you that both Paul's friends and Agabus had a revelation which was absolutely correct. But their interpretation of it was wrong. I mean, you think about Paul's friends. They love Paul. They have his best interests at heart. And they get a revelation from God, maybe a vision or a picture, seeing him 
a, a, a catastrophic situation, a wearing him in Jerusalem, and motivated out of love and compassion for Paul, they misinterpret what they have seen and therefore misapply it, taking it as a warning, and therefore their interpretation is, Paul, don't go. Agabus, again, probably saw a picture of Paul surrounded by an angry mob in Jerusalem, but yet misinterpreted what he saw. Those that heard it again agreed with him and told Paul, don't go. And you see this happening, unfortunately. I've been aware of this happening in the church today. You get somebody who's maybe got a terminal, terminal illness, and somebody will come along. And out of love and compassion, and I would argue a misguided understanding of what the Bible says about healing, will speak prophetically and say, God's going to heal that person, and the person dies. I've no doubt in many such cases, people have got a genuine revelation from God, a picture about that person's situation. And out of their love and empathy and compassion and a misguided view of what the Bible says about healing, they have made an inaccurate pronouncement because they misinterpreted what God had shown them. It begins with a revelation. When we communicate it, we prophesy, but before we communicate it, let's wait on God as to what the interpretation of it means and how we're to apply it. Yes, prophecy. Does it conform to Scripture? If you're given a prophetic word and it comes into conflict with the word of God, reject it. The Holy Spirit doesn't bring confusion. The author of this book, and if he inspires a prophetic word, they will harmonize. There will be no contradiction. Look at the fruit of the person giving the prophecy. Are they walking with God? Are they rooted in a local church? Have they credibility? Does the prophetic word edify, exhort, comfort, encourage? Does it come to pass? We need to be careful. I sometimes think that there are many Pentecostals who put more weight on prophetic words they've given than the, rather than the Word of God. And the irony is, I've seen this, so many who get prophetic words, it's like they're on a high, they live from one prophetic word to the other, and they never settle in a local church, not recognizing that every prophetic word generally finds its fulfillment within a local church, and because they never settle anywhere, it never comes to pass, and they go from one person to another looking at another prophetic word. It's, a, it's an endless cycle. What an important and powerful gift. What potential. Paul says the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. But look where that gift can go to. Look at the potential. Because he says in verses 24 and 25, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. If that doesn't motivate us 
to desire for the Spirit of God to manifest His presence and demonstrate His power. If that doesn't motivate us to desire that, I don't know what will. Wouldn't you love people from the area, Monaghan, Valley Bay, and so on, to come in and declare God is truly in this place? All things, verse 40, should be done decently and in order. Remember the gifts of the Spirit in the church work in the context of worship. And our worship should reflect the character of God. And in verse 33, we're told, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches. Let me challenge you again. Do you desire and are you ready to be used in the gifts of the Spirit? Can we pray?